Okay, so welcome to the Truth to Power show and Radio Free Brooklyn. I'm your host, VJR Nathan, and with us today is Logan Porosnik, uh acting as co-host. Welcome, Logan. Good morning, VJ. Good morning, good morning. And our special guest is Mary Lannan, who is a 2020 recipient of a new work grant from the Queen's Council on the Arts and a finalist in the 2019 Iron Horse Literary Review Trifecta Contest. Her short stories have been published in Story, New World Writing, and Woven Tale Press. She runs a reading series in Kew Gardens, Queens, and teaches at Nassau Community College in Long Island. Welcome, Mary. Thank you. It's great to be here. Good morning. Great, great. Good morning. Good morning. Why don't we start the conversation off about your writing? Uh, tell us a bit about what are some of the recurring themes in your writing? What do you think it's things you're obsessed with or things that you're really concerned yourself with? And give us kind of an overview of your writing, um, publishing, yeah. Uh, sure. Um, I think early on, um, my work uh, was interested in power relations uh, concerning gender. Mm -hmm. So I have a coming-of-age novel. Um, it's called uh, An Explanation of the Fundamentals of the Derivation of Dilapidated Brown Station Wagon Theory, a.k.a. How I Got... Uh, oh dear, AKA how I got stuck in a parallel universe or something like that. <laughs> it's been a while since I wrote it, but yeah. it's about a girl who believes uh, that um, she, um, after fighting with her father, she got sucked through a faulty air conditioner and landed in a uh, parallel universe. Uh, but it's not uh, that she, act, uh, it's not science fiction. She doesn't, it's something she believes to help her cope with uh, with her small town uh, Catholic uh, world uh, that's giving her all these messages about uh, being a girl that don't make any sense to her. Um, so she comes up with these t ridiculous scientific theories uh, to make sense of them. And my early stories are a lot about um, power dynamics between young men and women. Um, my latest work is uh, a dystopian satire novel that I just finished not it's mostly finished uh, and it's about um, the premise is it's 2046 and uh, children are sponsored by corporations in exchange for free college tuition Mm -hmm. uh, so there I'm really a little bit, my canvas is a little bigger. Um, I've always been interested in class as well as gender. Um, and so this is a really class-based, you know, the, the middle classes have to sort of sing for their supper. Uh, the upper classes, they don't have to be sponsored by corporations and they get a college education. And the working classes, you know, they're sort of out of luck. Uh, they really don't have the option of being sponsored and so they're like working nonstop. Um, and I also, in that novel, uh, try to grapple a bit with white privilege as well. Uh, so yeah, I've always been interested in, in power dynamics, maybe at the micro level, and then um, at the larger level. Uh, yeah. Yeah, and you were talking a little bit about intersectionality, how um, you know different identity classifications can combust 
you know, we all have places of privilege and places of oppression and how um, in writing, you know, we're talking about characters as being complex people, complex uh, identities and all this kind of thing. If you discuss a little bit of intersectionality and how that influences you and your writing. Yeah, um, I mean, all my characters are pretty flawed, you know, so, and I mean, I think that's true of life, but I, I do think that, um, especially now or a lot of times, there's, uh, you know, people get outraged and sort of justifiably outraged uh, with um, when they're discriminated against. And mm. that, you know, that fuels the energy of, uh, of protest movements. Um, but I think, uh, the downside, and there's always a downside to everything is that sometimes, uh, as, and I've been here, I've been there myself, you sort of forget that you yourself, uh, have flaws and are prejudiced and, and would also discriminate, um, you know, or have discriminated without knowing. Um, so in my latest book, you know, my, uh, my main characters are white and they really are white. You know, they have very racist thoughts, really. They're very privileged uh, or some of them. One is very privileged. Um, so there, there's always a little bit of a mix. Um, and I think good writing uh, grapples with the mix of people, their prejudices and their ideals and shows their flaws Um that's not usually all that helpful in a protest movement exactly to be too no too nuanced because you won't get what you want uh, and things do have to change. So uh, I find myself a little bit, um, I just find it, it's, you know, there are times to be nuanced and there's times not to be nuanced, I think. Mm. And I think as a writer or, or a lot of writers, you know, when you're trying to grapple, you, you maybe make the mistake of not, um, you know, standing up for something because you're like, oh, I want to be nuanced or something when it's really not an appropriate moment to be nuanced, so to speak. Mm. Yeah, it's interesting. Like, basically, like, I'd like to explore a little bit more the kind of contextual meaning of the word nuance, meaning like um, you're kind of taking too many things under consideration, I guess is what I'm understanding. Like, you're not simplifying the point to the point where the reader can access what the truth is that you're getting at so instead it's kind of counterbalanced by all these mitigating circumstances you might say is that what you mean by being nuanced i do yeah i think in in fiction you really want uh to confuse you know provoke your reader a little bit um you want to sort of bring them in with their uh and and dig a little underneath the surface because we we all are like oh i like this character you know i i share this character's beliefs and then as a writer you want to then try to make them think right so then you uh oh then they're also thinking this way or you're trying to show that that's a little bit arrogant even though yeah. they're right they're also kind of arrogant or um you know, they're just trying to make themselves feel better there. So it's a little more complicated, even though they could be right. Uh, they have, um, you know, they have character flaws. Uh, or, you know, they could be totally wrong, but they're so charming, you know, um, that they kind of suck you in a little bit. 
So yeah, I think what you said is exactly right. Uh, in in fiction writing, you do you don't want an easy truth because it will be boring. Mm-hmm. Um, but there are some easy truths in life, you know, and there are reasons to uh, to fight for something, you know, and where you you can't worry about people's flaws. You just have to join with them together in a just just cause. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's like uh, the character might have, uh, you know, flawed, uh, might be flawed, but you want to kind of think about the larger truths that they represent and then try to kind of focus the attention of the reader on specific things, but also give them a good scope of like the larger picture, I think is what you're saying. I think I understand what you're saying. So it's like, it's good to balance things out, but also you want to kind of push the narrative forward in a way that uh, kind of has a statement to it about the larger truths in society. I mean, the, the narrative as a whole. So mm-hmm. the, the book as a whole has like a statement about the, um, the, larger truths in society so um yeah so i'd be curious like what uh what thinkers or what uh civic philosophies or or um works kind of influence your perspective on uh on these truths uh were there any particular writers that you were like oh they really got it uh yeah there are so many really i feel like you know uh we're all built on on all the people we've read before us. Yeah. Um, I would say uh, Margaret Atwood was a huge influence on me um, er, um, early on. Um, at the same, even before that, I would I was a philo- I got a degree in philosophy, and uh, Karl Marx, Foucault, a lot of feminist thinkers, Audre Lorde. Um, and I mean, Marx probably because of his ideas about class, and uh, Margaret Atwood in par- and Audre Lorde, and a whole slew of feminist thinkers, really Patricia Williams, mm. um, Elsa Foucault, power. I was really interested in power and how power works um, at the time. I mean, yeah. I didn't really realize I was interested in that, but yeah, all <laughs> yeah, yeah. So. Um... Yeah, yeah, and then if you go get, get a little deeper with, um, like, how these things, like, you kind of, like, basically you're getting from these thinkers, like, some thesis, some idea that you're able to apply in your writing and, like, how you're able to flush them out in, in situations, I guess, but you're saying. Like, you're able to, like, explore mm-hmm. the nuances of these, like, thinkers, like, on class, for example, and able to explore the nuances of these uh theories and such we'll get a chance to listen a little bit to your writing in about five ten minutes but we'll get, why don't you pick a specific work and then why don't we kind of hear a little bit about how it played out sure i mean um it's a little tricky because you know you read all this stuff you read all this philosophy and then you don't unlike writing like a philosophy book you don't directly draw from these people but i mean i can sort of see that like foucault for example uh, was the first time that I read about what probably people would call now microaggressions, right? Uh-huh. Um, the way in which, uh, you know, power travels in really small moments and we understand our position um, in the world, not always through some big thing that's pressing down on us like capitalism, but by the way someone talks to us, Um 
and also i guess um you know i i came to understand that like the, the world is sort of within us you know um are from you know watching tv just a simple example you know if you watch all those cop shows you're being you're being told so many messages uh about women about color about class um that you don't even you just watch the tv show you know you're not really recognizing that and then uh you unpack it you know you go to school and or you get a progressive teacher and they're like look at this what does this mean you know um and so those ideas that what we say what we think are really reflecting a larger world is really helpful when writing a novel because you're not just thinking about what would a person think in this situation but also what is the larger implication of what this person is thinking in this situation you know how are they being unknowingly often or you know unconsciously to them uh sexist or racist or classist or or idealistic you know or um that it's not all you know we learn our ideals as well um through through uh culture too so uh and that mix is within us um and i feel like the novelist uh or the fiction writer because we can talk about inner thought inner thoughts or thoughts thoughts kind of um information so i hope that answered your question yeah i know totally totally, yeah, and, totally, totally. oh i seem to have an echo in this uh but that's okay all right um so talking about uh, essential truths that now we talked a lot about essential truths that we think are undervalued by society, but kind of focusing in on that, like, you know, we have the general narrative of like we were talking a little bit about like how certain aspects of like power dynamics have like, come like microaggressions have come into the narrative. But uh, what are some other things that you feel are undervalued? What like um essential truths that you think are undervalued by the popular narrative right now? Yeah, I mean, I do think that class, well, I think, I think class could use a little more attention. If you had asked me that like five or 10 years ago, I would have said race for sure. Uh, because, uh, you know, they're just um, so many, I, I mean, I was teaching anti-racism in the late 90s and the early 2000s that was not on the national stage and now is. So that's exciting because, mm. um, you know, all these ideas have been around. Like intersectionality was 1989 was the first time she talked about it. But it wasn't, it's not in the popular culture until relatively recently. Now people you know, hear about intersectionality, they, they actually know what it is. Um, but I still think class um, could, even though we had the, um, the big movement, uh, the 2%, um, I mean, I think a lot of these, I, I do think class could still use a little um, uh, shoring up or, or being part of the conversation a little bit more. And maybe even though intersectionality is a word, um, I think it sometimes does get lost in the conversation. Or um, this is where sometimes I feel like people forget to talk about their privileges, even though that's a pretty common thing. I'm going to say all my privileges now. And then um, 
it's one thing to say them, but it's also another thing to uh, think about them um, when you're when you're making other statements or when you're acting. So it, it's it's great that people think it's good to say your privilege, but I do think that um, it just saying it might might not be enough. That maybe and probably people realize this. I mean, we need to we all kind of need to try to live better up to our ideals. So I don't know if I'm really, I don't know. So I think that's, that's what I have to say about that. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. So I would take a moment to listen a little bit to some of your writing. Why don't you set up a little bit of a, a piece of writing and then you can read a little bit. Sure. I'll just read from my, um, the novel I'm recently, um, completed. Uh, I sort of hesitate to say completed. It never feels complete, but uh, it's called Tide Girl, and uh, as I mentioned earlier, this is the one where the children are sponsored by corporations. And uh, so there's three characters. Uh, the one, the first guy who I'll read a little bit from is, uh, he started the program 20 years prior. Uh, so he convinced uh, the corporation of Tide to sponsor children. Um and so they have to wear T-shirts with Tide on them, and they have to be filmed occasionally, and they have to wrap their cars in Tide. And um, so he started that program. And now, and when the novel opens, it's 20 years later. His company is sort of headed towards bankruptcy, and he wants to get a tenure-track job at um, this college. Uh so I'll read a little bit from him. This is the opening chapter. Uh, how long would you like me to read for, BJ? About five, ten minutes. About five okay. minutes. About five minutes. Five minutes. Okay. Yeah. Uh, on his way to the college, Garf- Garfield von Wert had a headache. He rarely got them, but a day of signing his ebook, starting a phenomenon while having fun, could bring one on. Not the best title. understand never mind capture in writing the mysterious mix of skills and personality that made him a success still he'd sold the book because that was his forte selling god his head hurt weird how signing ebooks and making idle chit chat with his fans could bring a headache on usually only the top of his the tip of his finger hurt from dragging it across the screen but today his head was killing him his fans, he couldn't believe he had fans. He'd had followers for a long time, 2,535,622 to be exact, way down from his peak of 8,855,002 and still declining. But fans were something else. They bought a book, showed up as reading. They made him feel like the real deal again. Now on the way to the airport in the back of a taxi, he fumbled through his luggage, Somewhere in there had to be the IB Pro pills. The cinnamon smell of the super Cinnabon taxi wasn't helping his head. In fact, it was sickening. Far from its intended... Well, the microphone knocked out.
Are you back on? Okay. See if that works. Mary? Yes. Oh, go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. You keep reading. Okay, yeah, so on. just... Uh... Yeah, just the microphone cut out for a second. Yeah. Thank you. Okay. All right. So, um... Uh, now on the way to the airport in the back of a taxi, he fumbled through his luggage. Somewhere in there had to be the Ibupro pills. The cinnamon smell of the super Cinnabon taxi wasn't helping his head. In fact, it was sickening. Far from its intended purpose of getting him to fork over 10 bucks for a cinnamon roll. Adding to the hard sell, holographic facsimiles of the rolls sat in all their glistening stickiness in a holographic glass box that appeared to be suspended from the ceiling of the cab, along with a glowing sign that explained the time it would take to stop at the nearest establishment to pick up a real version if ordered from the cab right now. He asked the driver to cut the aroma and the holograph. Sorry, man, it's broken, the guy said. The taxi slowed and came to an abrupt halt and his pounding head bumped against the seat in front of him. Ugh, you'd think that could have be avoided with the autopilot system. Wasn't that the whole point of riding driver-free? A calmer and easier ride, the ad had proclaimed. Then again, Garfield, now nearly choking on the cinnamon smell, laughed at himself, for he knew all too well about marketing and its sleights of hand. Besides that, even after five years, it still, it still felt strange that cab drivers no longer drove. Instead, they served as a fail-safe measure in case the automatic pilot cut out, and they still collected the fare, though that, he supposed, could have been automated, except that might lower the tips, which he, like many, still gave, even though he often wondered why. Old habits die hard, I guess. This guy, unlike a lot of his peers who often recorded on Holovid, had his red baseball-hatted head bent low over his beat-up rolling wrist pad. Its brown case cracked, its rolling screen clouded and not properly extended. Poor fuck, probably couldn't afford to buy a new one. Garfield hoped he wouldn't be late. The dean said she'd meet him on the other end, and he just hated to be late. His anxiety probably had something to do with his father, who throughout his childhood would boom, you're going to be late, as if it were a matter of life and death, not of courtesy. Luckily, he was traveling on a strong weather day to Connecticut, and not down south or to the coasts that were so plagued with extreme weather these days. Anymore, there were only a few swaths of the country that didn't get hit with floods, tornadoes, monsoons, blizzards, polar polar vortices, heat waves, droughts, you name it. Locusts were next, he thought, if he wanted to get biblical about it. People did. Why would God allow such destruction, they'd asked. 
which would have to piss God off if he existed. Since Jesus fucking Christ, it seemed more like global warming had little to do with God and a lot to do with human stupidity and short-sightedness. Um, so that's uh, that's a little bit of the opening of the novel. Yeah, thank you, thank you. Thank you so much. So the, yeah, we tell us a little bit more about uh, kind of the... Um, how it fits into your larger works and how kind of your process or your kind of, uh, you can read a little bit more of your process, a little bit more of uh, kind of like how, um, you know, how it fits into a larger kind of thesis. Yeah. I'm sure. So, um, you know, I uh, started writing this book about seven years ago and um, I had this voice and I had this guy in a cab and I really didn't know, like, what the larger work was really about yet. Not exactly. I mean, I had the concept that it would be sponsored children and he would be the one who, um, you know, had started it. But I didn't really know why he was in a cab or why, you know, um, he was thinking at the time about um, his, uh, why he was stuck in a cab. But now, you know, now that I've written the whole thing, I realize that, you know, he's stuck in a cab because he's stuck in life. You know, he has a headache because, and he rarely gets them because he's the kind of guy who, you know, has had it pretty easy uh, for a lot of his life. Uh, he had, was incredibly lucky to make a lot of money here early on. And uh, this is sort of his first experience of uh, not really uh, succeeding or, you know, having to switch gears a lot. And, um, you know, his his fans are dropping. Uh, plus, you know, he's in a cab that's the super Cinnabon taxi yeah. um, because everything is sponsored, you know, and everybody's <laughs> trying to sell things to each other. Uh, I have this idea that, uh, you know, internet culture changed to marketing culture. And so truth doesn't matter anymore. It's what we can sell to each other, right? And, I mean, you kind of see that in the alternate fact universe we're living in. And how can I get Facebook, you know, where do I get my news anymore? It's like, can people convince me of something? Um, so, yeah, and, uh, you know, everything is sponsored in this world. Everything is trying to be sold. And so then um, marketing gets moved into the art department of this college because there's no difference between marketing and art anymore. And, and so this is kind of my commentary um, a little bit on, um, you know, how we, how capitalism has really gone amok. And, uh, you know, it, it does just, even though we, you know, we talk, we literally talk about how to market ourselves and how we're all brands. And I think that's a dehumanizing way of looking at things. So, um, this is sort of, it was sort of fun to do, I have to say, um, to make up all these brands and um, make up the super Cinnabon taxi cab. Yeah. yeah, that's good. It's good. Yeah, it's really great. And uh, I really appreciate the humor in it and the kind of, you know, the satirical elements of it. You know, so it's good. Um, Thanks. So uh, now thinking about what do you hope your uh, listener or reader will uh gain from this uh kind of insight in, what insights do you think they'll gain like into how how you think they'll act be moved to act differently or what what is kind of your uh intention for them 
your gift to them to be able to empower them to do something or to act in a certain way or kind of become raising awareness maybe i don't know yeah i mean um i think hopefully novels teach us to think in a more nuanced way and also maybe i hope people laugh a little bit you know i i you want to entertain people while also uh, trying to get them to think about the way we do talk talk to each other, you know, what kind of language we do use with each other, um, and whether that language is really serving us. And maybe, you know, um, I mean, you know, it's one novel, but hopefully it changes a little bit about the way people think or, or the way they see themselves. Um, and the way they see others and society. Uh, You know, I think we are a little bit unthinking about the marketing language that we adopt for ourselves. And so, I mean, I guess in my, you know, ideal world, (laughs) people might, you know, think twice about using that. I I don't know. It's only, it's really only one novel and it's pretty widespread the way we talk. So, Uh, but yeah, I'm hoping that it impacts, you know, the, the way people think their language and uh that you know we we um i guess stop valuing or remember because this is in the culture too remember that um you know there are other ideals besides um selling and winning um one of my characters is um very religious And I'm not, you know, advocating everyone adopt a religion, but the contrast between the voices that she has in her head, you know, which are um, somewhat idealistic about, um, are just so different than having an ad jingle in your head, right? Yeah. So, you know, the... and And that contrast is intentional. Not that I'm advocating necessarily, but... Uh, we can have so many more ideals and if you read a lot ideas in your head rather than marketing jingles you know yeah but who's winning right now i think is the marketing jingle <laughs> yeah, yeah it's so true it's like uh these things get stuck in your head like earworms you know but uh, there's oh, yeah. science behind it or something but um yeah speaking of speaking of which this seems to launch into the question about beliefs or practices that you have that are strange and unpopular within your industry that seems to be connected to that question uh you know kind of what you think about that what do you think what do you think about that you know generally speaking in that industry um in the writing industry or the or the um even academia what do you think is unpopular yeah yeah i'm i mean i spent i'm I've spent a lot of time in graduate school and I've spent a lot of time in the academy. Um, I was a journalist for a little while, so that was a little bit of a different setting. But in the academy, I find um, that there's a lot of, um, you know, it's all, uh, there's a lot of anti-religious prejudice, I think, among people. It's just sort of unthinkingly. um, They they are often, and it's not everyone, obviously, but there is, I've heard people just disparage organized religion um, sort of off the cuff. Uh, they often did not grow up in a religion themselves and uh, they just sort of uh, will just say things like, um, oh, what's the name of that? Uh, 
like God is like Santa Claus to these people and and religious people are just stupid. You know, it's just a very, um, and you know, these people consider themselves extremely progressive, but this would be a blind spot. I think that they have, um, because it's like an acceptable prejudice to some degree. Um, and of course, you know, they're, they're, they're not entirely wrong. Organized religion can be a force for bad. Um, it can, um, it can make people not think, but that's not the whole of it. And, uh, so yeah, I find that that's uh, a blind spot in my, in the world that I'm often in. Uh, I think creative folks are often a little bit more open to uh, spiritual and religious ideas. I think in the academy, you get a lot of people, and it might just be a personality thing, uh, that are, you know, very invested in being rational and reasonable. Um, But in a way, none of us are completely reasonable and rational. We all have a little bit of an irrational side to us, which I think you need, you do need to acknowledge. Uh, And I think sometimes they have, it's sort of a personality thing too. I think, you know, you're, you're taught to be very analytical and reasonable and you can sort of believe that you're more analytical and reasonable than a lot of people maybe Mm. Um, because that's your strength. Maybe. I don't know. Yeah. But I do run across that. Yeah. Good. Thank you. Thank you. Um, So thinking about um, kind of valuable uh, successes and failures. So thinking about that. So first let's start off with the successes. What were some of the most valuable successes that you've had in your life? And, and, and uh, uh, how, what do you think you kind of gained from them or, or what was kind of the ways in which you, they taught you or, or also the valuable failures in your life? You can pick either one or kind of how they bounce off each other. Um, yeah, I think um, success, you know, um, I guess I would think like I have some very good friends, um, you know, a warm family. Um, those are, you're not, those are little bit gifts. Maybe you don't exactly earn them. Um, a great boyfriend. Um, and, um, you know, I've, I've, uh, got a great job. I love teaching at Nassau Community College. Uh, I love my uh, teaching my students. I have great colleagues out there. Um, so I've been very lucky in a lot of ways. I mean, I have um, like a really nice life, really, in in, a, in so many ways. Um, so um, I'm grateful for that. I mean, in terms of failure, I mean, I did struggle early on um, to figure out that I was even a writer. Like, I grew up in a small town in Pennsylvania, and um, I didn't know anyone who was a writer or an artist. Or, I mean, I would have called them authors, and I would have thought of them as geniuses, really. And uh, I did not, luckily, think of myself as a genius. So I, you know, I really didn't understand myself at all. Um, I was pretty good at school. My parents wanted me to be a doctor or a lawyer, which is great. They aspired for great things for me. Um, but it really wasn't really, that wasn't for me. And there was a lot of pressure to, um, 
succeed. My parents are the children of Irish immigrants. Uh, so they were out, they were like, they grew up working class and they were really strivers and they wanted better for their children. And that's great, but it does have a little bit of a dark side. It, it pushes, pushes you. Uh, maybe um, it's harder to see yourself because you're trying to live up to these expectations. So that was a bit of, that was quite a, that was a struggle for me uh, to sort of uh, claim my own, uh, my own way of doing things and my own way of looking at things and to recognize that I was going to be, that I had any talent in writing, that I could even do this. Um, I thought I really didn't think this was something normal people did. <laughs> I just thought you had to be a super odd person or, you know, you had to be like, you know, the myth of the artist. It was very present to me, you know, and when I first told my parents I wanted to like go to graduate school and study writing, they asked me if I wanted to be famous, you know, that and that was the attitude we kind of had like, oh, mm. and how silly that is and how silly art is. Um, so, you know, I really didn't. uh I just really had those attitudes within myself and I had to learn that like normal people do this. And it's, it's actually, you know, not that mystical or hard and everybody really has creative. And that it's one of the wonderful things about uh, the world is how we can all be. So we can all be creative. Um, maybe some of us have a little more inclination that way, but we're, we all are creative. So. Yeah, yeah, and it connects a little bit with what you were saying about uh, in the preview questions about uh, individualism versus, uh, you know, kind of the collectivism or the individualism as genius, the individual is genius. And uh, what experiences do you often reflect on that are watershed, watershed moments in your own process? So you're talking a little bit about how, you know, your views on individualism, which is interesting, I think, because like once you separate the person out from the herd, it's like, they get a lot of focus gets on them and that can be there can be a pathology to that as well you know of individualism as, as opposed to just a celebration of the individual there's a lot of kind of baggage associated with kind of this idea of genius and this idea of kind of isolation and all this kind of thing yeah what are your thoughts on that yeah i mean i do think that we we do really emphasize individual achievement or maybe i'm just speaking from my own personal experience yeah. a little bit that i and i do think that that can be um i think it plays around with the ego you know you either maybe think too much of yourself or maybe not enough of yourself um you're always having to prove yourself um and i mean you you see it every everywhere in our culture i think and maybe if we were a little bit more um communal if we were more um maybe less we had a little less emphasis on who the the individual is and what they can do um you know maybe it would be a nicer world <laughs> i don't know yeah yeah uh, so yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, definitely think that there is a a sense of like we both want the fruit without the the tree. You know, we want the the individual to tell us what or lead us without kind of dealing with the pathology of the group. You know, individual usually when they 
you confront the pathology of the group it's like people don't want to hear that they don't want to listen yeah. to that they don't listen to the lessons they need to learn they just want to like be led in the right direction and that kind of and that kind of blind leading can lead to its own problematic uh, problems you know we want to be able to understand uh in some degree where that leading is coming from and kind of understand how it's addressing a healthiness rather than a pathology you know so you know during the whole trump era it seemed like people were just following because it was like different you know the this the um rhetoric was like clashing with conventional kind of like you know um polite society if you will and people like led on by that as opposed to you know but not realizing it was addressing the pathology rather than the the healthiness you know seems to be exacerbating yeah. pathology yeah yeah trump is was definitely like a warped individual and and definitely warped by egotism and it's it's interesting that i mean like you said people did follow him and they were attracted yeah. to that uh unconventionality um and they definitely had a herd mentality there. Yeah, um, it's very much, very much the Trump phenomena was very much in line with what you're talking about with, uh, you know, in your themes about how, you know, he had to put his name on everything. And there was such a prominence yeah. of branding, such a prominence of kind of uh, personal, personal uh uh wealth, you know, gaining wealth from his presidency and from the, from the uh, movement in general. You know, kind of very much commercialism, very much a kind of you know, very much a kind of classism, you know, kind of thing like where they were kind of the the people were kind of even though the 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 actual voters of the people who followed him were from a lower class, a lower socioeconomic background, they were like attracted to his uh, his like kind of projection of you know higher class, higher. You know, the attraction attraction was based on the idea that he was like projecting success and he was gaining mm. success from his projection of success. You know, yeah. 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 Yeah, no, that's those are good points. I mean Yeah. Um, although I have heard that, you know, even though it's that there are that there are a significant portion of Trump supporters who are not working class, you know. So, oh yeah. Um, yeah. I do think it did appeal to lots of classes it's it's on i wish i wish we could know a little more i mean it's in the culture like you just said yeah why people followed him so and still like to their dying day kind of yeah despite all the evidence <laughs> yeah. that he was like corrupt yeah yeah people are just like they're like um they have a specific narrative i think and you know and ex even examining the ways in which you know, our own narratives kind of hinder us from seeing what's out there. And kind of sometimes it's easy to point fingers, but we have to see, like, we have to examine ourselves, like, how, um, for example, like, this whole idea of uh, cancel culture and how, uh, you know, that's been something that's been coming up in the news a lot and a lot of people have been discussing. And the idea that, you know, like, when, when people see things that are coming from a specific time and place, uh you know in either in the past or uh some obscure place they're like quickly bringing attention to it in order to specifically with the intention of uh calling attention to the pathologies that that represents but then the individual gets kind of like what's the word um witch hunted if you will 
for that pathology. You know, so I think that's very problematic in my view. Is very problematic because we're not seeing it as part of the the pathology of the whole. Rather, we're seeing the pathology of the individual. You know. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's very. It is tricky. It, it's taken out on the individual, even though. I mean, we all have these prejudices, and we're all like prone to saying something stupid. Uh, and you will, you can get um, just, as you said, witch hunted, um, as if it's solely in you and not in all of us. But on the other hand, you you kind of do understand, you know, how like certain people uh, are are more and um you know sinned against than sinning rather you yeah. know their their microaggressions are more prone to them and that they're tired of it kind of um they're tired of you know like racist comments they're tired of sexist comments so i don't know it's a it's tricky but i don't know that cancel culture is really serving us that well on the other hand, I've I've seen um, lately how the right wing has picked up this term cancel culture and it's yeah. kind of using it. So I don't know that I want to be I want to be on the side of the left critiquing yeah. ourselves and not really feeding into this idea that somehow the the right is for free speech. They seem to be yeah. for free speech when they're uh, when it's convenient to them. Oh, of course, of course, yeah, yeah. We just want to be more nuanced in our conversation around these things so that then we're able to see, as you're saying, kind of pick up some cues that you're talking about, like be able to see like, you know, um, how the culture really needs to change. And, and you know, we kind of can use these uh, civic works or civic writers as examples of how, you know, their successes have been given by the culture. So we want to be able to, you know, kind of address the pathology, not necessarily uh, kind of isolate the person as being problematic, but rather the pathology within the community and understand how we can achieve kind of a more healthier uh, attitudes towards these topics, you know, like towards yeah. uh, power dynamics. And and, she's, and, it, and when you think about healthiness, thinking about like uh, the kind of um, – you know that, that that terminology maybe unpacking that for a moment, like thinking about how whether or not the objective is to create a healthy organism within the society or more socially just, and how these two terms might coexist. You know. Mm. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, another thread of my novel is sort of, um, sort of, you know self-help culture and um the language of self-help which i think can be helpful but i do think that um sometimes we oversimplify how to get healthy um but i do think you're right that you know there some like deeper health right like um deeper examination of the self um can uh lead to uh, more social justice, but I do think uh, that's that can be hard to find or hard to figure out how to do um, because we have a lot of sort of superficial um, derivatives of that idea in the world a little bit, if that makes sense. Yeah, so basically what you're saying is like, you know, um, I didn't really understand the derivatives of the idea, that aspect. I'd, 
derivatives of? Um, I mean, I guess it's sort of like, um, I don't know. I guess one thing we, we like to do everything faster, right? So there's all these, like, uh, I can do exercise for seven minutes a day. Oh yeah. yeah. (laughs) And then I, and then I'll be healthier. And in a way you will be healthier, but it's, it's like, I'm trying to make, like these big long self projects into like tiny moments of my day or five minutes of meditation. I'm not saying that's terrible, but it's yeah. not exactly a meditative practice. It's not exactly a healthful practice. I mean, you don't just get exercise, you know, so you can do it fast and, you know, look better. Oh, yeah, uh, hopefully yeah. there's more to it than that, you know? Yeah. We're training discipline off for like, uh, prepackaged you know like quickly packaged consumerism so it's like you're right. just consuming discipline rather than trying to really instill it in yourself and really get those deeper layers of uh of uh of a kind of experience we're, rather we're trying to get to a quick experience or a, it's actually um kind of packaged up in a consumerism culture rather than yeah. uh you know really deeply attacking the root of the consumerism yeah Right. You're not really, you, you really, I mean, it's, it's harder. It's so hard to do because, you know, it's hard to not get caught up in trying to do things faster because there's so much pressures on everyone to do things and get things done. So it's really hard, I think, to go against that and to really um, think differently. I think it's really hard to do because we're, we're given these little packaged things that, oh, that'll make your life better, you know? Yeah, one image that comes to me is like how, uh, you know, the branding of unbranding, it's like the branding of like questioning branding is like, what it becomes like, it gets engulfed by the machine itself so that then yeah. uh, the actual dismantling of the branding or the dismantling of the system because incorporate into the system as part of the system. So it's like amazing yeah. how like the unraveling of it is not unraveling. It's more like a package that that's the way that the system works. So it's like when we think about questioning everything or questioning the, the system, it becomes part of the system. So questioning, questioning everything becomes like packaged up in this kind of consumeristic kind of way mm-hmm. that becomes actually aligned with the thing that it's trying to question. You know? Yeah. Yep. Like the co-optation of like feminism, you know, yeah, yeah. It's, it's packaged or, um, you know, the, the pink ribbons of the, um, breast cancer oh, yeah. uh, thing, the empower that's somehow empowerment. Um, yeah, there's a lot of examples of that. I think where the marketing marketing machine takes over and I guess, you know, in some ways it popularizes certain ideas like body positive, idea but at the same time it suggests that you can have these things quickly yeah yeah and also the way the way in which you get it quickly is obviously through consumerism through you know like the way you get like when we have a you know they understand the system understands that these goals are laudable and these goals are are achievable but at the same time they they're they're kind of co-opting the pathway to those goals so that then instead of doing the long haul of like really thinking and really uh observing and really doing critical analysis they give you a quick fix 
to like feel the um, experience of the satisfaction of the goal without actually, you know, going through the long haul of like experiencing it, you know? Yeah. Mm -hmm. exactly yeah. Well exactly. said. Yeah. yeah. Thank you. Thank you. So, uh, yeah, yeah, as we start to wind down, I just want to give a couple of quick announcements. Uh, this is Radio Free Brooklyn, Truth to Power Show. We're here with Mary Lennon. Uh, we're talking a little bit about, um, we're doing a community, uh, basically, Radio Free Brooklyn is a 501c3 nonprofit organization whose mission is to provide a free and open platform to the community and uh, have conversations like this. So if you support this conversation, of course, we just ask that you uh, try to support Radio Free Brooklyn in any way you can, either by listening to the show regularly or by donating at radiofreebrooklyn.org slash donate. You can do a monthly pledge or a one-time donation uh, just to help us stay on the air. Um, also, some of our sponsors include City Running Tours. So if you'd like to go to cityrunningtours.com or instagram.com slash cityrunningtours, find out about their uh, uh, tours of the neighborhoods in New York City. So cityrunningtours.com slash New York City will help you find out more about their tours of uh, neighborhoods in New York City. Um, if you're listening to this on your computer, uh, you can free yourself up by listening to your iPhone or Android by going to their respective Play Stores. Uh, just search for Ready for Brooklyn under the Play Store. Um, and then finally, uh, if you want to find more about uh, our programs and events, as we start to go back to the, we'll go back to business as usual. After the vaccines, we'll probably go back to the studio. So if you want to find out more, go to readyforbrooklyn.org slash newsletter. And you can find out more about our events and, uh, you know, and programs. Um, we had done this thing called the Wall of Lies during the past election, which included like 20,000 mis misleading or false statements given by then President Trump. Um, and that probably had, that was a big impactful on the community. So if you want to support more projects like that, go to Facebook.org slash newsletter. Uh, so finally, uh, I want to get Logan in there to say a few words before we end, and then we'll uh, start to wrap up. Logan, you want to say a few words? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, Mary, thank you for your time and for joining us this morning. Uh, it's been an absolute pleasure. Um, you did a wonderful job at anticipating any questions I had forming. <laughs> um, so thank you for that. It was really nice just to kind of sit back and really listen to you, and especially your reading. Um, the words you used there were just really stood out to me and struck me. Um, so I really appreciated that and hearing your insight as to what it's like to be a writer and a teacher, and especially in the times we're living in now. It's very important, I think, for people to hear that and understand that as well. Thank you. And Mary, do you have any last words to direct people to your website or anything that you want, anything that you want to uh, help people uh, follow you? Uh, yeah, I guess I'm on Facebook and Twitter at Lannon MF. Um, I uh, don't quite have a. I have a website for my first book called MirandaJMcLeod.com, um, and I'm working on a website for the second book, but uh, it's not up yet. But yeah, Facebook or Twitter, I uh, Lannon, uh, you can find me. Uh, this was super great. Thank you so much for inviting me. Thank was, you, thank you. And we still have a few more minutes. Thank you for doing but, this. I think it's so important to yeah. have uh, venues like this. 
Thank you, thank you. And just the last th- last thought is: uh, is there anything you're binge watching or, or listening to that you like to uh, talk a little bit about as you start to end, or anything you like to uh, say? Oh, let's give a shout out for. Uh, sure. Uh, I'd like to shout out uh, for some small presses, I guess. Yeah. Um, Jaded Ibis Press uh, put, uh, has a book called Angie, Angie Rubio Stories. I highly recommend. And Acre Books, um, Jen Scott, Her Adult Life is about a small town girl. It's, it's fabulous writing in that book. Um so I, I don't think small presses get enough enough uh, bling. So I, I'll, oh, I'll totally, throw that totally. out there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, people should look them up. And uh, definitely. And I guess I'll play a song us out. Uh, I'm trying to find a, a good song to end with. Um, let's see. Uh, I have uh, Anarchana. Uh, I'll, play, I'll, I'll play with that one. So Anna kinda um uh let's see. I'll just play a few songs from the EP No Longer Yours. Okay. Thanks guys. Thanks so much for being here. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Thank you all. Take care. to be so hung up every night getting drunk thinking of you with her thank you Didn't thank you bye bye thank you cry and call you up oh baby how it hurt it feels so good to finally say i feel nothing so moving on i'm ready for change i feel nothing Thank you.